Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 11. We just crossed over into Luke chapter 11. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd ask that you find your way to Luke chapter 11, or you can use a device, or you can use your phone, or you can use a scroll. If you've got one, feel free to unroll it. All right, we're going to be in Luke chapter 11. We're going to study along together. And a message that I've titled, How to Pray the Disciples' Way. How to Pray the Disciples' Way. And, and really what we're going to look at today is God's very invitation for us to enter into the family room. To, to share with Him this fellowship which ultimately draws us into vibrant life. Vibrant worship. A life that is geared toward his purposes. A life geared toward what we were created to do. But as we get into this message, I want to just share with you a little bit of my own personal background. On September the 30th of 2001, I pretty much stumbled into my first ever contemporary Christian music concert. I was walking through campus. I was, on, uh, I was in school in Chapel Hill at the time. I, w- I was a sophomore, actually. But I was walking through campus with a girl who was smarter than me and whose help I used to seek out when I didn't understand my math homework. When we came up on Memorial Hall uh, in Chapel Hill, there on the campus, and we saw this swarm of people who were kind of going uh, to the ticket booth and then into Memorial Hall. So we knew that there was something big that was going on on this day there in Chapel Hill. And so we asked one of the young guys who was going into that place what was going on. And he mentioned, well, there's a Chris Tomlin concert going on here. And then he looked so shocked and amazed and his jaw dropped as we asked who Chris Tomlin was. Because at the time, we just did not know, okay? And anyhow, we thought, well, let's check out what's going on at this place. We bought a ticket. We found our way soon sitting up in the balcony section enjoying a passion experience concert with Chris Tomlin there in Chapel Hill and there came a point during this concert when the preacher came out and he encouraged individuals all across this auditorium to gather together in holy huddles to gather up in these smaller groups and to share intimate times of prayer with one another and all across this auditorium individuals began to pray in these small little holy huddles you might call them And sitting next to my math friend and I, there were three other individuals who were obviously attending the concert together. So we huddled up together with them. And as as we did, they began to pray. And this was a long period of prayer. As a matter of fact, all three of them rotated through praying with my friend and I really standing there not knowing what to do until one of them in their group said, okay, now one of you pray. And there was about 30 seconds, I'll bet, of awkward silence as I, in my mind, contemplated what am I going to say in this moment when finally my math friend spoke up and began to pray. Still, I'm here in consternation. I'm, I'm worrying what am I going to say when my opportunity comes when thankfully, for me at that time at least, the preacher came back out and said, okay, please return to your seats. But this was for me a time when I did not know how to pray. Now, to give you a little context, I grew up in church. I grew up in a mainline church where anytime I was home on Sunday mornings, I was going to be in church. I was the little kid who all the old ladies loved because I would go around and hug all of their necks. 
And I came away with lots of bubble gum, lots of candy, okay? I'm not saying that's the reason I went around and hugged all their necks, but there are fringe benefits, okay, just so you know. Uh, but I still, I grew up in a church, and, and we grew up in this church where we spent a lot of time kind of reading, recited readings. We, we, we would pray together certain prayers. Even the prayer that we're going to see today would become a common vernacular for me. Because every Sunday when we gathered together, we would have what we called the, the, the time of prayer, the people's prayer and the Lord's prayer combined together. At some point as this preacher is, is preaching and as he's praying, he, he would stop and kind of pause and say, now we pray together as our Lord taught us to, to pray together saying, and then you, many of you know what comes after that is what we call the Lord's prayer. But I'd been in this context, I'd grown up in church, I grew up around individuals who prayed But there was one thing that was, for me, missing. One thing that became so painfully obvious there in 2001 in Memorial Hall. And it was this. I didn't know how to pray. And that may be a shocking thing for some of you to think that a guy who's now a preacher had grown up and had been in church all of his life and had never really known how to pray. But here in this moment, I realized that I had never done this one thing. I had never on my own, out loud, in public, without having first taken the time to write down what I was going to say. I'd never prayed in this sort of way. So I stood there in the midst of this huddle of new friends for those awkward seconds as I awaited someone to step up and to pray. I was trying to to muster up the courage for something that was not a common vernacular for me. And I realized what the disciple in the passage that we're going to see in this Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, this this disciple probably came to realize on his own. In this moment, I realized that there was something that was vital, that was missing in my so-called faith. Now, I wish I could say that this led for me to immediate repentance and that my pouring over Jesus' instructions on how to pray ultimately led me to himself, but it did not. There were other instances of awkwardness in being called on to pray before the Lord called me to himself and before I began to make a habit out of calling on my heavenly Father in secret times of personal prayer. But still, I found myself on that day in a place that one of Jesus' disciples likewise found himself in here in Luke chapter 11 in this first verse. And this unnamed disciple had just witnessed Jesus in a time of prayer of his own. Jesus was often found in prayer. Not only had Jesus literally just finished praying, Jesus made a habit out of prayer. And it's a habit that his disciples had seen him going into regularly. No other gospel author, as a matter of fact, records Jesus' prayer habits quite as extensively as Luke does. Nine times. Luke tells of prayers that Jesus offered in the crises of his life. Seven of those crisis-oriented prayers in Jesus' life were unique to Luke's gospel. In our journey through Luke's gospel, we've already encountered Jesus praying, for example, at his baptism in Luke chapter 3. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form as a dove. And the Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then we learn in Luke chapter 5, 16, that Jesus would often slip away into the wilderness in order to pray. 
Then in Luke chapter 6, Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent all night in prayer before ultimately he would call his disciples to come and spend their lives following him. Then as he introduced those disciples to what discipleship meant later in Luke chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Plain, he called for them to pray for those who mistreated them. Then again, in Luke chapter 9, verse 18, we find that Jesus was praying alone before the disciples acknowledged him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in Luke chapter 9, verse 29, it was that Jesus was praying. As he was praying, he was transfigured before their eyes, and the veil was lifted, and his glory was there on display for them to see on the Mount of Transfiguration as he stood with Moses and Elijah before three of his disciples. And there will be other lessons on prayer and other examples of Jesus' prayer life that we'll encounter if the Lord allows us to tarry through this study of Luke's gospel. But still, what we do not read about in this gospel is the prayer life of Jesus' disciples. In fact, while it's not recorded in Luke's gospel, we talked about it when we looked at this a few weeks back. We do learn from Mark's gospel that when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, his disciples were in this moment of challenge where they realized they could not drive a demon out from an individual's son. And ultimately, Jesus drives the demon out, and the disciples come to him after the fact that they ask him, why could we not drive this demon out of this man? And Jesus says, this kind can only be driven out through much prayer. The disciples are actually known more in the Gospels for their prayerlessness than for their prayerful sort of attitudes. Well, apparently one disciple finally was catching on because as this unnamed disciple sees how prayer is the very lifeblood of Jesus' ministry, this disciple decides to ask Jesus how to pray. And friends, hear me on this. Prayer is the lifeblood of the Christian life. When we deprive ourselves of prayer, we, dis- we cripple, we cripple our Christian walk. The word says in James 4, 2, you do not have because you do not ask God. And so I ask you, do you find yourself wandering from the Lord's paths? Do you find yourself neglecting his commands? Do you find yourself struggling to live the Christian life in your own strength Then I ask you, my friends, are you praying? And if so, how are you praying? Are your prayers offered up only when the times of life get tough, only when you find yourself in the murky circumstances, only when things are not going your way? Or do you have a regular habit of praying? Are your prayers focused on God's kingdom or are they focused on your own desires? Do you ever pray or set out to pray and realize you don't know what to say? Well, then, my friends, if you find yourself struggling with how to pray and with the habit of prayer, today God has a word for you. For today, we're going to encounter Jesus' own instructions on how to pray the disciples' way. So join me now in Luke chapter 11. We'll start in verse 1. If you're able, I'd ask that you just stand with me that we might honor the reading of God's Word, starting in Luke 11, verse 1. 
Here we read, It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Here ends the reading of God's word for this morning. You may be seated. Last week, as we looked at the verses just before this passage, Luke brought us into this encounter with two sisters named Mary and Martha. And in the context of that, we found that Mary was so busy with the preparation. She was so busy and worried about the things that needed to be prepared so that she might serve Jesus well. And meanwhile, her sister was busy as well, but she was busy in a very different sort of context. Her sister was busy sitting at his feet and listening to his word. And, and as all of that happens, the sister gets upset. Martha gets upset and says, Jesus, why don't you tell Mary to get up off of her lazy tail and get to work. He doesn't use, she doesn't use exact words, but it's pretty close to that, okay? The thrust of what she's saying is that my sister should be helping me in what I am doing. And Jesus tells her there's one necessary thing, and your sister has chosen the better part. And so we look at that and we say, okay, well, that's pretty insightful. We need to be worshiping. We, we, we need to ultimately be savoring the Savior in order to be serving him rightly. Serving without savoring will lead us to a futile sort of pursuit. And yet we, we look at that and we say, how can I do these things? How can I sit at Jesus' feet? How can I listen to his word? And I think for that reason, Luke leads us next into these instructions from Jesus on how to pray. Because prayer is the avenue, my friends. If you want to live a life where you have the opportunity to sit at Jesus' feet and to hear his word, prayer is the avenue. Prayer is God's way for you to establish this sort of relationship. Prayer is God's way for you to seek after that one necessary thing. And so richly, Luke leads us out of that episode into this one here today. Prayer is this vessel of intimate fellowship that Christ now invites his disciples into. And it's interesting here to me to note that prayer is a spiritual discipline that can be taught and can be learned. When the disciple comes to Jesus and says, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus doesn't say, well, you can't learn that from someone else. You got to learn it on your own. No, in fact, we even see that Jesus isn't the only one who can teach us how to pray. For the disciple says, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. That is, John the Baptist, this forerunner of Christ, and the final Old Testament prophet, taught his disciples how to pray. Prayer is a discipline that we can be taught. Prayer is a discipline that we can grow in. It's a discipline that we can develop and we can learn more about. And what we see here on display in these opening verses, I believe, is that the best teachers of prayer are those who have a healthy habit of prayer. That was certainly true of Jesus and John the Baptist. But there may be others you know who have a strong prayer life. 
And let me just say, it's a good thing to ask someone you know who has a strong prayer life how to pray. It's a good thing to come under the wing of someone else who would disciple you in this matter. If you are struggling in your prayer life, there is a natural design here where others who have a regular prayer life can take you under their wing and guide you in this practice. So don't be ashamed to do that. Don't be ashamed to tell someone else, can you teach me how to pray? Do you want to advance in your prayer practices? Do you want to learn how to pray? Well, seek out a fellow believer who has worn holes in the needs of their own best pants through regular time spent bowing before the Lord and ushering up their needs before Him. Plan a regular meeting with that sort of individual where you meet maybe once a week just to spend time together in prayer. Because oftentimes learning prayer happens best in a discipleship sort of context. You will be on the fast track when you are willing to allow someone to model prayer for you in their own words and to teach you what prayer is all about and to pray with you and to guide you when your own prayers are wrong-headed. In fact, Jesus did that very thing. His disciples got a little bit upset at one point and he asked them, Lord, do you want us now to call down fire from heaven? Do you want us to bring destruction? Do you want us to, to pray and through that prayer to offer condemnation upon the people who are rejecting you? But when James and John asked him if they could do this in Luke chapter 9 verse 54, Jesus rebuked them and he said, The Son of Man did not come to destroy lives, but to save them. So Jesus is instructing his disciples even in their wrong-headed sort of prayers. And, and I just want to encourage you, find yourself a prayer champion. And learn this most valuable of all disciplines. But we can also rejoice, my friends, that the greatest prayer warrior of all time has not left us without his instructions on this matter. So as we dig into this model prayer that Jesus gives us as he taught his disciples how to pray, I want you to see four lessons on how to pray the disciples' way. Four lessons on how to pray the disciples' way. Here's the first lesson. Skip the recital and proceed with what is vital. Skip the recital and proceed with what is vital. The model prayer that Jesus presents here in verses 2 through 4 of Luke chapter 11 is what we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer. I was talking to Keith Richardson about what I was going to preach about. He's gone with the, the youth today to our, to our soup kitchen. We're thankful for the work they're doing over there. But, uh, but he said, oh, you're talking about the sports prayer. And some of you know what he's talking about. When you would play sports in school, sometimes we would huddle up and we would pray this very prayer, the Lord's Prayer, as we either prepared for a game or as we came out of a game. I know when I played football growing up, this was a game, this was a prayer that we would offer up every Sunday together as a team. Most of us probably not knowing what that meant, but still, it was a, a prayer that we offered together. And it's a prayer that many of us learn to recite in certain contexts. Usually when we recite the Lord's Prayer, we're reciting an extended version of what we found here in Luke chapter 11 and the extended version actually appears in the sermon on the mount so when jesus preached the sermon on the mount matthew chapters 5 uh, 6 and 7 in chapter 6 beginning in verse 9 we find an extended version of this lord's prayer but all the essential elements are here in luke's gospel and the content is so similar what we get the idea of is that ultimately jesus had this model, he had this design, he had thought through, he had boiled down the essence of prayer to the point where it became something that he offered up regularly in his teaching ministry. 
both in the Sermon on the Mount and in this context, which is totally different. The Sermon on the Mount probably happening up in Galilee, this context here happening near Judea. The, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks this prayer in the midst of a longer lesson on prayer. And here, the context is that someone comes and asks him how to pray. Jesus made a regular habit out of teaching individuals how to pray through this model sort of prayer. And the elements are so rich and so similar that we must tap into the truths that we find here to see where he is directing us in a life of prayer. Some of you grew up like I did in a church context where you said this prayer every Sunday and you would have those same sorts of prayers or maybe you would just begin with someone saying, and let us pray together as our Lord taught us to pray. Let's see how many of you know it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Yeah, a lot of you know that prayer, right? This has been a common vernacular sort of thing for you in your life. And there's some contextual differences there that I really got into the weeds of this week as I kind of studied the history of the Lord's Prayer. You know, the version that we use doesn't, it doesn't follow the King James authorized version. It actually follows more of what appeared in a couple of books of common prayer from the Anglican Church back in the 1920s, which was a surprising find for me. And then there's some differences with Catholicism where Catholics don't have that final bit of, of uh, glorification Uh, that happens for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever Uh, they do not recite that some of you would say debts and debtors instead of trespasses and those who trespassed against us sometimes individuals say forever and ever as opposed to forever and all of that becomes this cackling when we get together across denominational sort of lines and we recite the lord's prayer but the essence is not in the formula that you pursue out of those many options, the essences that Jesus has given us, a good model that we can follow for a rich relationship with him. Now, it's not necessarily the case for every individual who repeats this prayer on a regular sort of basis, but for some individuals, praying this prayer can become a meaningless sort of ritual. Sometimes when we get too familiar with something, we get into too much of a routine and our words can pass through our mouths without ever touching our hearts. I know that it could be that way for me back when I used to pray the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. These days, I think we evangelicals have allowed the pendulum to swing too far back the other way wherein now we're so kind of opposed to responsive and and unison sort of readings that individuals are not learning the Lord's Prayer in a context when individuals come to faith. But I say this, learn this prayer. Jesus ultimately offers this prayer to us as a model for how we can pray. Learn it, commit it to memory, use it to guide your own prayer. Jesus repeated this model in his teaching ministry. This is a helpful guide for us on how to pray. 
But don't get stuck in the rut of some ritual of saying the same prayer without ever allowing it to touch and to transform your heart. The same sort of thing can happen not just with the Lord's Prayer, but with prayers like, God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for our food. It can happen with prayers like, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord, my soul, to keep. It can happen with prayers like, bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. Not that the content of these prayers have anything wrong with them. These are rich theological truths that we may be proclaiming through them. But my friends, it is not the ritual that establishes the relationship. It is the fact that we yield our hearts to God in offering up our prayers to Him. We pray from the heart. We pray in a way that aligns our will with His. And that is the rich fruit of a real prayer life. And if if your times of prayer do not lead you to desire great moments of outflowing thanksgiving, great moments of begging for God to help with you in your life, begging for Him to make His glory known on the earth, then, my friends, you are missing the point of prayer. In fact, when Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer over in Matthew's Gospel, just before that, in chapter 6, verse 7, He says these words, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. And so I say, don't let prayer become for you a meaningless ritual of repetition. Don't just recite your prayers. Breathe life in through them. Skip the recital and proceed to what is vital. And old friends, prayer is so vital to the believer. If John the Baptist needed prayer, how much more do you and I need prayer? You see, John was a miracle baby who was born to elderly parents who were beyond childbearing age. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. And Jesus said that among those who were born of women, no one was greater than John the Baptist. And here in verse 1, we find that John taught his disciples how to pray. The forerunner of Christ had to pray. Don't you think that we need to pray? And if John's example were not enough for you, our Lord's disciples had this high privilege of being called to him in order that they might spend life with him and learn from him in the flesh. They even received from him the power to perform miracles. Yet they wanted to know how to pray in a greater way. Do you think that we need to pray as well? Or look at the example of Christ himself. He was God, very God, in sinless human flesh. He could heal the sick and he could raise the dead. He had the Holy Spirit without limit. There were no situations that he did not understand. Jesus did not encounter any needs that he himself could not meet. And yet he had a holy habit of praying. Jesus didn't just teach us about prayer. He modeled prayer for us. And what it's like to have this perfect communion with God and to fuel up for ministry here on earth. And if Jesus needed to do those things, then my friends, surely we too need to pray. 
We need to offer up our requests to our Lord. We need to spend time in fellowship with Him, learning from Him, aligning our wills to His. Prayer is vital. A Christian who does not pray spiritually is like a person who does not breathe physically. The Bible knows nothing of a Christian who is not in regular prayer. Prayer is vital. And so I urge you, skip the recital and proceed with what is vital. That is the first lesson on how to pray the disciples' way. Here's the second lesson. Take note of who you address your prayers to. The model prayer given by Jesus with his command that we are to say here is, Father, hallowed be your name. Those two truths that are really laid out in that short little phrase hear about how we are to pray. But these truths are so rich and so insightful. The first truth about who we pray to is this. He is Father. What a wonderful truth to know that the God of heaven, the God who made all things, the God for whose glory we were created, desires for us to address Him in family terms, in the richest of family relationships. Only believers can do that, my friends. Only those who have entrusted their life to Christ can truly know God as our Father. How so? Well, here's what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. He said, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that we might, he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And then he says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see, Jesus came as our substitute. He was born under the law that commanded us how we are to live before a holy God. And he obeyed that law perfectly, living a sinless life. And yet he ultimately was sacrificed. He ultimately died. He came that he might redeem those who were under the law. He came that he might redeem those who found themselves to be sinners, far from God's will, far from his holy presence, at enmity with him. And yet Jesus stood in our place. He paid the debt that we owed. He redeemed those who were under the law that we might receive adoption into God's family. And because of what Christ has done in taking our place under the wrath of God and rising victoriously to live evermore, my friends, we have an opportunity to come before God, not as though we are coming into a court of law, but as we are coming into a family room with our Heavenly Father. That's the rich blessing that Christ has provided for us. We come to our God as Father. He welcomes us as His child. That's a rich truth, my friends. To God be the glory that we can know Him as our Father. Maybe you're here and you want to know how you can join this family. How can you join in with those who've been redeemed and those who've been adopted, those who can call the heavenly God of all Father? Well, let me show you how this happens. You simply trust in Jesus. You acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you can't make it to God on your own. And you trust in Him. You turn away from your sin and you put your trust in Him. And you follow Him and you yield your life to the one who has borne God's wrath on your behalf. And so I plead with you 
Turn from your self-centered life. Come to the Savior. Ask Him for forgiveness. And my friends, He will forgive you. He will welcome you into the family. Trust in Jesus and you'll come to know the God of heaven as your Father. And you know, I taught all of my children their first words. I used to get some rough looks from Amy because early on when they first started kind of cooing and gaga and all that sort of thing, right? I was... I would just sit down with my kids, hold them in my arms with sweet affection. I would say, dad, 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 dad. <laughs> over and over again, dad, 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 dad. Amy would look at me, dad, 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 dad. And sure enough, the first word of all three of my kids, you know what it was? Dad, dad, that's right. It worked. They called out my name. And I want to tell you, my friends, that for me was a joy. Do you you know what it's like for the God of heaven to to offer for you an opportunity to to call out to him with these family terms, to to call out to him and say, my dada, my Abba, my father, do you know what a rich blessing that is? You see, it was a joy for me to hear my kids call out my name. I was longing to hear them say my name. I longed for them to know me and to know that there was something different about me and the relationship that I shared with them from the relationship that they would share with anyone else. I am their father and I cherish them and I love them and it is my job that I have chosen. I have chosen to pursue that a part of my life will be protecting them and providing for them and it is my joy to do so to make their welfare my very own invested interest and my friends you have the opportunity to call out to God as your Abba Father, you have the chance to know him as your dada. There's a very real sense in which God the Son is teaching us to call on the name of God the Father and as he's doing that he is teaching us And we have a privilege of calling on him as a loving and a caring father so that we may know him and honor him and enjoy his provision and his protection and his steadfast love. And I still long for my children to call out my name. I still long for them to request my help and to seek my counsel and to guide them out of the potential perils they may face in life. And my friends, I want you to know God wants that sort of living, loving relationship with you. And just as an aside, let me, let me quickly mention this. The regular pattern for prayer in the scripture is, is for the believer to pray a prayer that is offered to the Father through and in the name of the Son with the help of the Holy Spirit. That's the regular biblical pattern that we find in the most common prayers in the Bible. In John chapter 15 and 16, 15, 16 and chapter 16, verse 23, for example, Jesus assured his disciples that wh- whoever they asked, whatever they asked in his name would be granted. That means that they were asking for things that were in alignment with his will. And Christ is also our mediator. 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 and 6 reveals that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, that man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So we offer our prayers through and in the name of Jesus, 
okay? But we also have a helper in our prayers. The Holy Spirit is sent into the world, according to John 16, to glorify the Son. And he glorifies the Son by leading us to the Son and by causing us to see the Son as the ground for our access to the Father. As we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. But we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches the hearts. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the regular model of prayer in the New Testament is for believers to offer up their prayers to the Father through and in the name of the Son with the help of the Holy Spirit. That's why you won't typically hear me in my prayers with the words, in your name, I pray. Because they're prayers that are offered to the Father in the name of Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit. I'm addressing my prayers to the Father, not to the Son. But I say this as an instructive sort of lesson to you, not as a word of rebuke. Because we also know this. There is perfect fellowship within the Godhead of our one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no competition. There is no jealousy between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So don't feel as though your prayers have been wrong-headed or rendered null and void if you've been praying in some other way than the formula that I've just kind of laid out for you here that is the, the consistent, regular prayer formula in the Bible. Furthermore, I think it's good for us to recognize that there is personhood of the Son. There is personhood of the Holy Spirit. And when we call out with words such as, come Lord Jesus, or come Holy Spirit, we are acknowledging the personhood of the very members of the divine trinity. And so those can be many prayers in a context that really echoes what we desire to see happen. But still, that regular pattern for prayer in the Bible is that prayer is offered to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me encourage you to pursue that as your regular model in the way that you pray. But take note of who you address your prayers to. He is Father, but also He is Holy. Now in our day and age, we see lots of individuals who are disrespectful to their fathers. Do we not? They do not show them honor they do not hold them in high regard, but that must not be so when we come to the God of heaven. Let me just say there are a lot of fathers who are not worthy, but the God of heaven certainly is. Prayer is serious business. When we come to the God who calls for us to pray to him, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us to pray, hallowed be thy name. He's teaching us that the name of our God, his reputation, and our understanding of who he is must be held in the highest of esteem. We should never use the name of God as a word that is used in a futile sort of way or as a, as a means of profanity. We must hallow his name. That means we must set his name apart as holy, as exceptional, as worthy of great honor, as greater than any other name that we may call out. And friends, when we pray, we pray to a holy God. Prayer is serious business. When we truly pray, we are communing with the God of the universe and we are cooperating with him and accomplishing his will here on earth. 
That's a high calling for us. That's an important thing. That's something that we should not approach glibly or lightly. It's something we should take with sincerity. The privilege of fallen men to communicate with a holy God has come at a great cost. Prayer is an expensive privilege. Jesus had to suffer and to die just to grant us the privilege of prayer. For us to enter into the holy of holies and to speak with the Lord of heaven cost Jesus his life on the cross. Jesus opened the veil to the temple of God by shedding his blood for our sins. So don't take this privilege lightly. Don't let your prayers be frivolous nonsense. Hallow the name of your Father as you take note of who you address your prayers to. That's the second lesson of how to pray the disciples' way. Here's the third. Let your will succumb to the kingdom to come. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he calls for us first to focus on the Father and who he is. Then he calls for us to pray that his kingdom would come. That's a prayer that ultimately says, I long for your eternal kingdom. And Jesus is coming again, my friends. Jesus is coming to establish this kingdom. His kingdom is coming. And our prayer should long for that coming. Our prayer should cause us to realize that the trials and the temptations and the sorrows and the sickness and the death that we face here on this earth is not the end of the story, my friends. Because Jesus is coming again. And he will cause all of these things to pass away. He will make all things new. And as we pray, there's an element in which when we say, your kingdom come, we are saying, we are looking forward to that day. We are not going to let the sorrows of this moment be the thing which drags us down because we know that Jesus has already won the victory and he's just waiting to show the rest of the world. Are you, are you excited about his kingdom coming, my friends? Because it is coming. But when we pray your kingdom come, we aren't just looking forward to a future end of time sort of event we are praying for God's will to be done as Jesus adds in Matthew chapter 6 on earth as it is in heaven you see before we offer up our personal needs Jesus tells us to offer our praise to God and to submit to his will he calls for each of us to let our will succumb to the kingdom to come so the pattern that he establishes for us is that we should put his glory before our needs and our desires but if we're honest I think that we would confess that too many of us, when we pray, we pray like the prodigal son spoke to his own father. He said, Father, give me, right? Give me my inheritance. Give me so that I may go and use it for my own pleasures. We want life to be all about us. And our prayers reflect that. We want to have success. We want to have blessings. We want to have fortune. And so we pray in a way that says, I want my will to be done. A.W. Tozer has written, Prayer among evangelical Christians is always in danger of degenerating into a glorified gold rush. And friends, before we, can, before we can pray, Thy kingdom come, we must be willing to pray, My kingdom go. Because there will be times when God's kingdom coming And God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven will put me in harm's way. There will be times when seeking God's will will ultimately put me in dangerous situations. There can be times when ultimately praying that his kingdom would come 
will mean that my kingdom leads to a sickness through which his glory can shine. His kingdom coming in my life can at times end up in my giving up my fame and my fortune in order to pursue the least of these just as Christ did. And so my friends, we must have this mentality that says, thy kingdom come, my will go. Before we bring our request to the Father, we should consider them in light of the responsibilities that the Father would call us to carry out for his kingdom. And we must ask, if God granted me the answer to this prayer that I'm requesting, would the answer to that prayer glorify his name and extend his kingdom and accomplish his will on earth? Or am I just being selfish in my prayer? When we pray that God's name will be glorified, it helps us to take the selfishness out of our prayers. When we ask that the kingdom come and his will be done, we become servants who are ready to do his will and not masters who are telling the Lord what he ought to be doing in our lives. George MacDonald wrote, And whatever a man does without God, he must either fail miserably or succeed more miserably. And friend, I just want to ask you, what, what are you doing on your own without God? What, what are the accomplishments that you're accomplishing apart from Him? What are the grand things that are, that are, that are stacking up your life in this moment that ultimately you know are just something that you are doing on your own? Because let me tell you, there is coming a time when you will breathe your last breath. And anything that you accomplish apart from Him will have no enduring value. And so there is a right setting of expectations for each one of us that says, ultimately, his kingdom is coming. And so let me, in my life, align my will to what he is doing for the things which will last. Because that's what he offers to us. Prayer is the place where two kingdoms collide. And I choose to declare God's kingdom to be the victor. And that is good for me because that's the kingdom that ultimately will last so let your will succumb to the king, kingdom to come. That's the third lesson on how to pray the disciples' way. Here's the final one. Make known your needs to the God who feeds, bleeds, and leads. After God has been exalted and our will aligned to his kingdom priorities in prayer, then Jesus shows us that now's the time to offer up your requests to him. And these three requests found in Jesus' prayer relate to our present needs, to our past failures, and to our future decisions. First, make known your needs to the God who feeds. As for our present needs, Jesus teaches us to pray. Give us each day our daily bread, in verse 3. That's a pretty simple request, is it not? Jesus is, is teaching us not to pray for a mansion on the hill, but for what we need to get through this day. Like the nation of Israel wandering through the desert, we don't need to store up manna for tomorrow. God may bless you with that. But that's not what you need. He gives us each day what is needed for that day. And so make your needs known to the God who feeds. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. So friends, I think if, if we're honest... There's very little that we need on a daily basis. But if we have Jesus, we have all that we need for all of eternity.
And my friends, there's a very rich fellowship that comes from praying to him daily. Jesus expects us to come to him daily. He says, daily bread. And so if you're disappointed or if you are discouraged, if you are dejected, I ask you, are you seeking the God of heaven for your daily bread? So often it's our willingness, our unwillingness to pray that leaves us starving for self-satisfaction. Also make known your needs to the God who bleeds. Jesus teaches us to seek forgiveness for our sins in verse 4. And friends, he offers that forgiveness so richly. When Jesus calls for us to pray in a way that would say, forgive us our sins. He is, he is teaching us to pray a prayer that God has already richly provided the solution for. He has already provided all the forgiveness that we will ever need through the one who has died in our place. And so we pray to the God who bleeds. We pray to the one who has given himself in our place. We pray with a sort of mentality that says, I'm going to be a forgiving person as well because that's a hallmark of the Christian. Those who have received great forgiveness will show great forgiveness as well. And Jesus draws that out here in this prayer. But finally, make known your needs to the God who leads. That's what Jesus calls for when he teaches us to pray. Lead us not into temptation. Now, God does not tempt anyone. We know that from James chapter 1. We are tempted when we are lured by our own flesh, lured by our own evil desires. That gives birth to sin. Sin's accomplished. It brings forth death. That's what's so richly laid out for us there in that James passage. But it is our own fleshly desires that cause us to commit sin. What's Jesus teaching us to pray then? He's teaching us that we need to seek the Father's leading. Temptations will come. God will allow us to be tested and tried. But he provides the grace, my friends, for us to persevere through every one of those temptations. So for him to lead us is not into temptation. It's for him to guide us by the power of his spirit to choose the paths in the midst of our temptation that will honor him. There's a story about an old fellow who was having trouble with his diet. And so he prayed, oh, Lord, if your will for me is not to have donuts, then I pray that when I pass by the Krispy Kreme today, there would not be any places open at the Krispy Kreme. All right? So, well, as luck would have it, as he went by the Krispy Kreme, he did find a parking space right up front. The trouble was he found it on his 12th circling around the parking lot. <laughs> And sometimes I think that's the way we pray. Lord, don't lead me into temptation. Lord, guide me from this situation. But we are not fleeing that temptation. We, we find that it's not there and we just keep circling the block. But we, we keep guiding until we find the opportunity to take advantage of those things. Someone has said that most people are being crucified between two thieves. The thieves of regret yesterday and the worries about tomorrow. So they're unable to enjoy the blessings of today. But my friends, Jesus has dealt with our yesterday. He's paid the penalty for our sins. He offers up forgiveness for us through his blood, which has been shed for us. And he's taken care of our tomorrows. He can guide us through temptations. And he ultimately has won the victory, which shall give us pure and final, victorious life over these things. And so I just want to ask you, are you living in the joy of today? If not, I want to encourage you to reach out in that lifeline and to find what Christ so richly offers to us in prayer. 
find that He is the one who grants to us eternal life. He is the one who has all things in His hands. The God of heaven, my friends, has you in this situation. Are you going through a trial in your life right now? He's got it, my friends. Are are you facing a temptation now? He's got it, my friends. Are you dealing with some level of unforgiveness in your heart? My friends, He can give you the power to overcome that. Are you suffering and struggling and do you feel like life is just a mess? My friends, go to the Lord in prayer. Establish a relationship with your heavenly Father and let Him provide for you. This rich path of blessing to know that He's got it under control and that ultimately the victory is His. If you are in Him, then the victory is likewise yours. We together as a family will enjoy His rich blessings forevermore. And so, friends, I just want to say, are you in a time of trial? Are you in a time of wandering away from the Lord? Are Are you in a time when prayerlessness is characteristic of your life? I think we all find ourselves in a drought every once in a while if we're honest about things. But don't let this opportunity pass you up. The Lord is providing for us an opportunity to pray. He is encouraging us and teaching us how to pray, the importance of prayer. Don't let this opportunity pass. Take today. Put your stake in the ground and say, on this day, I am going to establish healthy prayer habits. I am going to learn how to pray. I am going to tap into this rich resource that God grants to me. Because, friends, he wants to check in with you on a regular basis. He wants you to find your daily bread in him. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, we do acknowledge you as glorious. We do acknowledge you as holy. And Lord, you know our hearts. You know how we wander from you. You know how we, oh Lord, can so often end up in a place of prayerlessness, a place of drought, a place where the very breath that we need is not a component that we are seeking after. And Father, as we close in these final moments, I pray that you just help us to understand what life with you really looks like. To understand that there's so much more that we could be enjoying in this life if we would only come to you and then make our requests known. If we would only establish with you a lifeline that would, that would be for us a daily fueling up, a daily calling to live on mission for you. So Lord God, don't, don't let us take this lesson from Christ for granted. Teach us to pray. Call us to prayer. God, God beckon us into a relationship that daily seeks your face. And Father, I pray that this would be a day when we, as your body, would begin to see rich blessings because we have honored your word and we're calling out to our loving Father. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.